Greetings and welcome back to What is California, a new podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale, and this is episode three of What is California. Three episodes down. Can you believe it? It seems like just yesterday we were celebrating California Admission Day and the premiere of What is California with Governor Jerry Brown. And uh, yeah, we're three episodes in now. The guest today, Graham Farrar. He's the chief cannabis officer of Glass House Brands based in beautiful Santa Barbara. And it was a thrill to talk to Graham about the cannabis industry and what Glass House is doing and just some of the changes that we've seen in the growth of this multi-billion dollar industry since adult recreational use legalization in 2016. Of course, medical marijuana has been legal in California since 1996 and business is booming. Graham will tell you all about it. Now, I'll be totally honest, I am not a weed person, not really a cannabis person. I'm fascinated by its impact on our society, on our culture. I am fascinated by folks who do use it and how it benefits them. And I think it's great that it's legal. I think it's necessary that it's legal. And I look forward to the day when we can actually not have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of low-level drug offenders in prison for cannabis-related offenses. And Graham does too. And one of my favorite parts of this conversation is where he describes how the developing cannabis industry and the leaders in that industry can use their power to lobby for change and to create and enforce a more equitable, sustainable drug policy in California and by extension, eventually the United States. Of course, marijuana is still a schedule one drug federally, along with, you know, heroin, <laughs> and LSD, so that's going to have to change. And Graham and I talked about that too. And that got us to another really interesting part of this conversation because, you know, the federal prohibition on marijuana will end someday. And when it does, California growers are going to be very, very well situated to capitalize nationally as an export because right now California can grow marijuana but can only sell it within the boundaries of the state. But once you actually have the federal prohibition lift, then California can export it nationally. And growers like Glasshouse Brands are setting up supply chains to be ready for that moment. I found that fascinating. Graham's going to tell you all about that. It was also really, really interesting to hear about ways that the cannabis industry is working to mitigate the climate impact of growing cannabis. Because as you can imagine, cultivating cannabis at a statewide industrial regulated level has a lot of energy consumption implications. And thus, it has a lot of greenhouse gas emission implications, a lot of climate implications. Growers have to reckon with that. And we talked a little bit about ways that Glasshouse is doing exactly that. So we'll go ahead and get to Graham in just a second. Before we do that, I want to thank everyone once again for sharing, subscribing, listening, reviewing, and otherwise, hopefully, enjoying what is California. It's been a thrill being in your ears these last couple of weeks, and I look forward to returning in the weeks ahead. And hopefully we just kind of keep building that audience up. I would love anything you could do to spread the word, whether it's reviewing us on Apple podcasts, sharing us on Twitter, subscribing to and or forwarding the newsletter, the Substack we have at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. And if you just want to reach out anytime, you can DM me on Twitter at whatcalifornia. And of course you can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Dot com. I would love to hear from you. And in the meantime, here is me with Graham Farrar of Glass House Brands. Enjoy. 
Graham Farrar from Class House Brands. Welcome to What is California? Love to talk about your operation, what you do, but let's start with your California story. Are you from here originally or how did you get to the state? Yeah, so um, I'm a California local and um, I grew up in Santa, Santa Barbara, which is about 100 miles north of Los Angeles. And by some amazing um, turn of serendipity or good luck or the harder you work, the luckier you get, whatever uh, that may be. Um, Santa Barbara became one of the cultivation cannabis hotspots in California. So I get the awesome opportunity to do something I love um, in the form of cultivating and uh, selling and making products uh, from cannabis uh, in my hometown, uh, which is uh, something you could have taken a lot of my money for if you'd made me bet on 20 years ago. But somehow that's the, uh, the lucky life I get to live. Well, you mentioned the alchemy of work and life. How do you think that happened there in Santa Barbara? So, um, I think there's a couple, there's a couple things. One is the climate's fantastic. And I, you always, or I always keep in mind that everything in the entire cannabis industry starts with the plant, right? I mean, it's just kind of a, it's obvious, but undeniable, right? And, and Santa Barbara is a great climate for the cultivation of cannabis. Cannabis has been cultivated here for a long time, you know, far before it was uh, legal and regulated. Um, and it's just a great place to grow things, right? I mean, we grow in greenhouses in Santa Barbara. We didn't build those greenhouses. This is not one of the cases of you might, you know, find in like a desert hot springs or something like that where people built a greenhouse because they permitted cannabis. These greenhouses have been here for 75 years because it's a great place to grow. And it used to be the cut flower capital of the country was in uh, Carpinteria, which is part of Santa Barbara County. And that's because the, some of the best farmers in the world are Dutch and Japanese farmers. They came and they scoured the United States. They landed in Santa Barbara County and they said, this is the perfect climate. We're building greenhouses and we're gonna grow our cut flowers here. And so those are that, that, that's the fundamental reason that it happened. That, you know, there's also a political side to things as well. And Santa Barbara's a, a pretty progressive, uh, open-minded um, area. And so they like their agriculture and they um, aren't stuck in some of the more conservative ways with cannabis. And so um, we started growing here because no one said that we couldn't. And then uh, eventually built an ordinance around it, which is, uh, you know, you put an ordinance together with a great place to grow and people are going to do it. I want to talk to you about ordinances later, but I have a lot of questions about that. But uh, a little bit more about you. What's your earliest memory of California? Oh, that's a good question. So let's see. I moved. What's my earliest memory? I mean, I get one of my earliest memories uh, here in Santa Barbara was probably playing on the beach. Um, I remember, I think I told my mom that sand was annoying or something to that effect. Um, the first time I remember that, but I love the beach. I love the ocean and surfing and kiteboarding and, uh, my kids all are big beach guys. And, you know, I guess sand is somewhat annoying, but it's not, the beach is still worth it. So I've, uh, I've always loved living near the beach. I spent about four years, uh, living on, on boats and traveling the world and, uh, just being as close to the ocean and the things that happen by it has always been one of my goals. You got over the sand is what it sounds like. Yes, yes. Got it. In what ways has your area of California, Santa Barbara County, that region, how's it changed since you've been there and how do you feel about those changes? So one of the really cool things about Santa Barbara, um, at least from my perspective, is it's geographically very contained, right? So if you if you think uh, as you come up from LA, you pass uh, by an area kind of uh, right by Rincon, which is a great surf spot, but you're basically, you have four lanes on the freeway and on one side of the freeway, it's the ocean. And on the other side of the freeway, it's the mountains, right? I mean, it's literally that wide. So there is not going to be urban sprawl, uh, et cetera, development down there, unless you literally knock those mountains down, which nobody's doing. And then as you drive through Santa Barbara, uh, which is, you know, I'll say it takes you 
40 minutes to go from one end of Santa Barbara to the other on uh, Santa Barbara County on the uh, on the coast. You then hit an area, a really beautiful area called Gaviota Coast. And again, you come down to basically, you know, there's the ocean, there's a little bit of pasture land, there's four lanes of freeway, and then there's the mountains, right? And so, uh, and then in Santa Barbara proper, you've got the ocean on one side and the Santa Barbara mountains on the other. So it's a very long way of saying it's a very geographically contained area. So it can't really get much bigger. Um, housing is an issue here. Uh, on the one side, it's great because there's not a ton of people and it's not overly crowded. On the, the other side, the challenge is uh, the scarcity of housing makes it very uh, expensive housing. So they are working on finding ways to, you know, have more housing. But, it, you know, that's a, a 10% number, not a not a 10x number. And so Santa Barbara has really stayed quite consistent um, as a town. And I have to say, like, you know, there's a lot of cities I like, New York being one of my favorites, but Santa Barbara is far and away my favorite town. And at about 100,000 people in the city of Santa Barbara, you know, it's got lots of restaurants. Uh, there's a little bit of everything, but there's not too much of anything. And it just is a very honest, kind of authentic, real, non-flashy beach town in California. It's a beautiful spot. So what are some of the cultural values and cultural places, for that matter, locations, or the people in Santa Barbara who kind of stand out to you? Who have influenced or impacted you and what you do, who you are. I mean, one of the things that I really like is there's there's a, an area of Santa Barbara called Montecito, which is you know I don't know what it's it's a it's a equivalent of Beverly Hills. You got Oprah and you know a bunch of people like that that live there. But when you drive around, it's not Beverly Hills. And if anyone's been to Beverly Hills, it's like everybody in Beverly Hills. No offense to them, like wants you to know what they got right. It's Lamborghinis and everything's designer. Santa Barbara is almost the opposite, right? Like there's there's a lot of people with a lot of wealth driving, you know, just a, an old, you know, land cruiser or whatever, right? It's that kind of very not ostentatious uh, vibe. And that's one of the things I like is it's nice, but it's not flashy. And it's not like people are trying to push uh, who they are on you. And I think that, I think I, I, I ref reflect that. Like I kind of, uh, I'm going to, egalitarian, I guess, if you say it right. Like, I don't really care who anybody is. I try and treat everybody the same, uh, well and nice and friendly and benefit of the doubt. And, you know, just assume that people are good until they, unless they prove otherwise to you, uh, kind of thing. And I think that's a, that's, that's Santa Barbara too. Mm -hmm. What is Glasshouse Brands and what is your role there? Yeah, sure. So, um, Glasshouse Brands, we just went public, uh, on the Canadian exchanges, uh, via a SPAC merger, uh, with Mercer Park brand SPAC. Um, it, before that, it was Glasshouse Group, and before that, it was actually a couple of businesses uh, that myself and my um, co-founder Kyle um, started. So Glasshouse Farms was the original genesis of it. We started that six, I guess, going on seven years ago now. First greenhouse uh, was in Santa Barbara County, about 150,000 square feet at the time, very big. Um, and our goal was quality, consistency, and efficiency, right? Which was first, you got to do it great. Then you got to do it great every time. Then you got to do it great every time efficiently so you can deliver, uh, you know, solid value to a consumer in which you make. We started out as a wholesale uh, kind of cannabis grower. And once we got the formula down or, you know, felt like we were close enough, uh, we started our, our brand, which is Glasshouse Farms. And we just we went after that. And then we opened a dispensary and then we opened a second farm and then we put them all together in one uh, common entity. And that's that's what Glasshouse Brands is now. How did you get started in cannabis before Glasshouse? Um, I'm kind of, I guess I would say I'm a, by business experience, I'm a tech guy. Um, I was one of the original folks at software.com, which is a Santa Barbara company. We took public back, back in the uh, dot-com boom days. Um, and then I was one of the original folks at Sonos, which is a home audio 
system, um, another Santa Barbara company um, that also went public a couple years ago. Um, but all through that, I was always a cannabis lover by passion. Um, I mean, I think the world's a better place with cannabis in it. I think uh, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, as uh, to steal a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I've enjoyed cannabis probably since, you know, longer than I technically should have. But, you know, to me, it's it, it's it's it feels good. It's relaxing. It doesn't have negative side effects. Um, it can be medicine for many people. It doesn't carry, you know, some of the societal ills. Uh, you know, I've got two young kids, a 15 and a 12 year old. And, the, you know, the things I worry about are, you know, drunk driving, sexual violence, fights, you know, stuff like that. These are all things that get associated with alcohol and none of them are associated with cannabis. So when I looked out there, I said, we have this amazing plant that can offer a lot of fun uh, to people. It can lot of, offer a lot of healing. It doesn't really, you know, it's few and far between the downsides to it. And then. And we treat it and we demonize it, right? And we tear people's families apart and we spend billions of dollars on a drug war that was never really a drug war. It was really a war on people and specific people at that. And, and my belief, and I'm an optimistic person, is that that would change. And so I started closets, you know, home hobby stuff, a garage here and there, kind of stuff growing on my own. And I've really found that precision agriculture, which is what we try and do, is, is a very technical endeavor in a lot of ways. And so... My tech mind background actually layers in really well uh, to the agricultural side of things. Um, and then to do it with something that I enjoy so much and, and feel so strongly can be a benefit to our society uh, just makes it even better. You alluded a moment ago to the stigma associated with the cannabis industry and, and cannabis more generally. How have you seen that stigma uh, evolve and or diminish since you got started? The stigma on cannabis is, is one of the things that I would say surprised me or I most underestimated when I got uh, into cannabis, you know, on a, on a professional level was just how hard that stigma was uh, or strong it was, right? I, I always kind of had the assumption that people who thought that cannabis was, you know, quote unquote bad, they just had not been given accurate information, right? They'd been told by DARE and 50 years of our government and just say no, and it's schedule one. You know, the definition of schedule one is no known medical benefit and a high potential for abuse. Now I give you 20 facts that argue against that. I've never heard one that argues for it, but that's because I took the time and interest to find those 20 facts, right? If you're an average person on the street, like, hey, you know, they teach it to the schools, they say it on the government, like, it's bad, right? These are all the reasons they, t they told me it's bad, right? So I just always figured, like, hey, when you go to someone and say, you know that when you legalize cannabis, alcohol consumption goes down. Do you know that opiate deaths decrease by, you know, double digit, 24 or 25% uh, rates? Do you know that uh, Medi-Cal schedule, schedule D uh, spending, which is a measure of prescription drugs, decreases by very similar amounts, like 20, 20 plus percent, right? Like, uh, do you know that uh, crime goes down, right? Like all these things that people would say, oh, you know, damn, well, I thought this, but now I see the data is that, I'm gonna change my mind. Sometimes that happens, and maybe even a lot of times it happens. A lot of times it does not happen, right? There's a lot of people out there who don't want their mind, or not open to changing their mind, or wanna believe it, or buy into the racist undertones of a drug war, or whatever it is, not from a large segment of the population, but from a small segment, very intensely, there's a very strong stigma that persists. And of course it's going away, right? It's a one-way street. What are we at now? I think it's 18 states that have medically, have adult use cannabis and like 34 states that have 
some form of either medical or adult use, right? So way past the tipping point. If you look at the population center, it's way past half that have access. It may even be almost half now that have access to adult use. Um, federal government obviously is in discussion, Chuck Schumer leading the way on um, you know, federal descheduling or reform. The House of Representatives has now twice passed the Moore Act, which would deschedule cannabis. Kamala Harris, our vice president, deciding vote in the Senate, was his lead sponsor on the Moore Act, right? So like you can see, you know, it's one it took us 50 years to get 12 states at adult use. It took eight weeks to get four more. So that's a 30% increase. And it took another four weeks to get two more after that, right? So like it's an accelerating trend, tons of tax revenue. And also now on the West Coast, we probably have 20 years of combined, you know, Oregon, Washington, California, Colorado, it's probably 20 years, maybe more of adult use cannabis. And there's not a single horror story, right? And if you know, if there's a group, if there was a horror story, you'd hear about it, right? But teen use didn't go up, car crashes didn't go up. The only thing that went up was tax revenue, right? Like, and the jail populations went down, right? Both things that I think are, are very good. So, and, and then you have, you know, the medical side, right? Where it's, someone can think it's really horrible, and then their grandmother gets pancreatic cancer or whatever, and the tincture made from cannabis eases their pain, you don't go back from that, right? And then you tell that story to three people, and one of them tries it, and they have three people, and two of them try, right? So, like, we know where it's going, but the futures here is just not evenly distributed yet, and uh, so it's still an uphill battle against some pretty loud voices. What do you mean it's not evenly distributed yet? Most people you find on the street have said, hey, what's, you know, how dangerous is cannabis? They'd tell you not that dangerous, right? You go to Texas or Idaho and you're going to, you know, walk around the street, you're going to get a very different answer. So I would say the future is cannabis is not prohibited. It's not banned, but is instead regulated, treated like alcohol, cigarettes, things that are frankly much uh, more destructive and much more dangerous than cannabis is. But in that same kind of vein, but it's not like that everywhere, right? I mean, we're 26 years of can. We have a Gen Z uh, growing up in California that I'll call, you know, cannabis native, right? Like these people, their entire life has been some form of legal cannabis. Now you go to, there's states you can go to today and a joint will get you thrown in jail. I mean, think about what I do, right? I'm, I'm stretching to sell a hundred and something thousand pounds of cannabis this year. Like, you know, at some level, like a joint will get you put in jail if I was in a different state. So the future is here. It's just not everywhere yet, but the rest of the world will catch up. In a recent Bloomberg article, your Glasshouse Brands partner, Kyle Kazan, said he foresees an era when certain regions of California are known globally, or at least nationally, for the type of cannabis they produce, kind of like a Napa or Central Coast wine, etc. We'll get that for cannabis, is what Kyle said, and it sounds like what you're alluding to. What do you think? Yes, I, I totally uh, agree with that. I think the appellation of California, even just as the state, before you even get to the regions, uh, for cannabis is very strong, right? I mean, you might, you know, champagne comes from Champagne, France. Tequila comes from Mexico. You got a favorite non-Mexican tequila brand? Bourbon comes from Kentucky. Yeah, right. Exactly, right. And and cannabis comes from California. And um, when people have the choice, that's the choice consumers make. And you can see it. Uh, today, it's not a guess, right? Because the illicit market, which is still probably you know four fifths of the of the market on a national level, doesn't follow the rules, and they get people what they want, and what they want is California cannabis. You can there people smuggle California cannabis into other states where cannabis is legal, right? Like think about that, right? We're not just talking like you got to get it from somewhere. We're talking about people smuggle California brands to Colorado and Florida 
both places you can buy it, buy it legally. Certainly in the places like until very recently in New York, you know, you go to the, any of the Soho, or the, you know, bodegas in Soho there, they could have anything because they're not following the rules. And Florida's closer. Colorado's been legal longer. They're not filled to Colorado or Florida. They're filled to California because that's what the consumer wants, right? So, um, and similar, you know, you don't go to, I'm sure you could grow grapes in Nevada, but you don't have Nevada wine. You have, you know, wine from Napa and wine from France and wine from other places, right? And so I think cannabis will be the same. So people from California already kind of know this. I mean, you've got Humboldt, you've got Mendocino, obviously Santa Barbara. You know, these are different strains. These are different kind of varieties, different regions where cannabis is grown. What sets your region and your cannabis apart from these other California regions? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say I would be pretty adamant that the appellation of California matters uh, to consumers. I'm not sure how much the regional appellations within California will play a part so it's not as the, it's not the same thing as napa or central coast ones. yeah i think it'll i think it'll be a little less differentiated than that um myself um i think the thing that makes california special for cannabis um is where the culture kind of uh, originated and there's such a you know kind of center of gravity here i mean there's center of gravity in california not to not to be arrogant about california for a lot of things culturally i mean you're talking you know, Hollywood and music and, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff, but it really is the cultural capital uh, for cannabis. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, you have so many of the good breeders here, you have so many of the good growers here, you have such a great climate here. Um, you know, you have a big pop, it's a fifth largest economy in the world. It's the largest cannabis market. Uh, it's almost 25% of the country. It's probably, it's more than twice as big as the second biggest. It's almost as big as the next three markets combined. Um, you know, it's it just such a such a, a force um, when it comes to that, that I think so many things come out of here. And, you know, I don't know, you can find other parallels, right? Like people surf around the world. It's pretty hard to find a non-California or even non-Southern California surf brand. You know, it, I, I, I can't I can't list one. So that but, you know, it's a, it's like that same. It's just that epicenter uh, for it. And I, I think that is it's going to continue to push the limits on new products, new form factors, new strains, new genetics, quality, um, et cetera. So that's that's why I think it's going to be seen as the filter of uh, where quality cannabis comes from. Does California have any disadvantages compared to other states or other places where cannabis is grown or cultivated? Yeah, yeah. California has disadvantages for sure. Um, not so much in the in the product. I think it's it's really the, it's the cost and the regulatory environment here. California is, you know, the, the regulations are nuts um, across the board, right? All the way from uh, building and permitting to the cannabis regulations, you know, labor regulations. It's just that so far on the spectrum um, that it's you know it's kind of sometimes like riding your brakes your bike with the brakes stuck stuck on a little bit. Um, and then the other is the land is scarce and the property and the taxes are high. So, you know, I think those are those are some of the, the drags on it. But there's a reason that the vast majority of fruits and vegetables today are grown in California. Right. It's it's not because the labor's cheap. It's not because the land's cheap. It's not because the regulations are easy. It's because it's such a good place to grow that that outweighs all the other pieces. How has the coronavirus pandemic affected or impacted the cannabis industry? I would say it's a wind at our back, which is, is kind of interesting and you know, especially compared to so many other industries where it was a brick wall, right? Like 
Um, I think we saw, A, it was deemed essential by the governor uh, here in California. So both our farms, farms are pretty much always exempted because people know you can't close a farm for two months and then come back and expect to have anything. It's dead, right? So the, the agriculture is kind of always exempt. But the, but the pharmacies are, or sorry, our store is called the pharmacy, the dispensary, our dispensary, uh, were also exempted. Um, be, and I think, you know, the roots of that were 26 years of medical cannabis, right? Like it is medicine for a lot of people. And just like you need to be able to go to the pharmacy, even when things are shut down, they said you need to still be able to go to dispensary, which says a lot for how the state views uh, cannabis. And we saw that it was important because customers views it the same way. Um, we saw massive spikes in, in, uh, in sales. We saw people stocking up. We saw a lot of new customers. Our new customers uh, went way up. And I think you know, my, the reason I would give for that is, you know, we always had the kind of fun on a Friday night customer. We always had the kind of the chronic, uh, I use this to treat arthritis or uh, as part of my cancer regime uh, kind of patients. But what we got is people who were discovering the anti-anxiety ability to help us sleep. I call them the tincture on Tuesday people. This was not a partying on the weekend because everybody was in lockdown. This was a, my kids came home for spring break six months ago and never left. Uh, this is the, I'm stuck on the couch and I'm watching the, you know, the case count ticker. And now I'm having a hard time sleeping. I'm having a hard time calming down. I don't want to drink a bottle of wine every night to deal with it. So, you know, how can cannabis help me? And, and I think a lot of people found the, you know, the medical or, you know, the semi-medical side of cannabis of like, Hey, this can help me get a better night's sleep. Hey, this can help me calm down and, and relax and de-stress and, it's a lot healthier than alcohol. It's a lot healthier than pharma and prescription pills. And it brought in a whole new, whole new segment of the market um, that discovered it because of COVID. Okay, so I wanted to pivot to the agricultural part of this because obviously cannabis is agriculture, yep. and agriculture in California is not having the best run in recent years. There's climate change, obviously drought. I know that a lot of cannabis is cultivated indoors in greenhouses, but it would still seem vulnerable to wildfires, mm -hmm. perhaps more so than most crops because of where it's grown. Um, how are Glasshouse and other industry leaders that you work with or, or know about adapting to these seemingly intractable challenges in climate? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the, the first part of that answer should be we're all citizens on this planet and whether or not it impacts and we can adapt to it in our business, which we can, we need to keep in mind that like, that's just a small little sliver. Like, you know, the fact that I've got a well at our farms that has plenty of water in the aquifer doesn't mean that we should waste water. doesn't mean that climate change is not gonna come for us if we don't make drastic uh, changes. The recent report out, um, you know, if people need to read it. You're referring to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out earlier this summer. Yes, right. And it's they call it Code Red for a reason. And it's, you know, it's it's past the point of we can avoid this and more to the point of how do we mitigate it now? And so, like, you know, I don't <laughs> us being able to adapt to it as a business operation doesn't mean it's not a significant issue. So um, I want to I want to say that first, because we need to learn how to be good ancestors. And right now we're not doing a great job of it. So. Um, that's 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 the the, the foundational answer. Uh, Business-wise, uh, we are in very a very good spot he, it, here, where our current farms um, in Santa Barbara and our new farm uh, that's in Ventura County. Um, we're close to the ocean. 
uh, we're out of you know some of the more wildfire prone areas of Northern California, where it seems like every year um, is the biggest wildfire we ever had. We had the Thomas fires like four years ago now, came very close to our greenhouses, you know, and the hills behind us. At the time it went by, it was the largest fire ever in California history. It is now number eight. Four years later, it went from being the largest in history to the eighth, right? The one that's going right now uh, is number two behind the one that was yet that was last year, right? And you know, this, the Thomas fire was, was 280,000 acres or something like that. The one that's raging right now is 500,000 acres, right? The Mendocino complex last year was a million acres, right? Like these are all drastic changes in our climate. They're very obvious. I mean, we can see them in other states, but that's what we're seeing here. So greenhouses are great for dealing with that. The Thomas Fire, as an example, came by, was literally you know, on the hills on the other side of the street from us. We didn't lose a single pound of product. Greenhouse is amazing for protecting your crop. Part of the reason we do it versus outdoor, the reason we invest in all that CapEx and you know, build in structures and things like that is so that we can take what mother nature gives us and then polish it and supplement it and protect when we need to, you know, at the same time. And that's exactly what we did. We closed the ridge vents, we pulled the curtains on it and we didn't get any smoke or any ash or anything inside. Everything was, was totally fine. Very different than what happens if you were in an outdoor field. That would all been barbecue weed, uh, probably worthless, probably tainted, probably unsellable. And uh, so the greenhouse has protected us very well for that. Did you uh, say barbecue weed? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? That's what they call it when it gets uh, smoke tainted, right? So if like you have, an, if you have an outdoor field and the fire goes by and the smoke and the ash get on it, it ends up all smelling uh, like barbecue basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. That's, that's not a, that's not a desirable uh, trait. Um, it's not a flavor profile you're seeking in your weed? No, it's not the terps you want. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then, so then also, on, you know, on the water side, right? Uh, again, we, we have our own wells on site. Um, it can't, we're very efficient with the water. Uh, we capture all the water that the plants don't use. We're able to sterilize it and recycle it. Um, so, we're, you know, very efficient, much more efficient um, than many other crops. There's some studies starting to come out uh, that are also showing that. Um, and so I think that's a, you know, that's a real benefit. And particularly, it's a benefit of legal regulated cannabis. Illegal cannabis does not do things like that, right? They, uh, they are not recycling the water. I mean, oftentimes you have some pretty environmentally horrible stuff, right? Diverting streams, uh, banned pesticides, pesticides that are uh, left to go back into the environment, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, part of it, one of the upsides and the benefits to regulation over prohibition is that you can take hiding off the top of people's priority list and instead focus them on efficiency and treating employees well and tax generation and environmental issues, right? So uh, there's a cannabis general water order in California that holds cannabis to a much higher standard, uh, frankly, than any other crop. Yeah. There have been some reports about the environmental impact of cannabis growing, especially indoors. It's a setup, according to a recent report, that can consume up to 2,000 watts of electricity per square meter, which is around 40 times what it takes for leafy greens like lettuce, when those are grown indoors. And at least one expert, this is according to a political report the other day, at least one expert estimates the industry's footprint already accounts for more than 1% of U.S. electricity consumptions and continues to rise. In a recent article about Glasshouse, um, Kyle Kazan mentioned that earlier in 2021, you announced you would buy five and a half million square foot space that would make Glasshouse one of the largest California greenhouse operators in the industry. Now, how will Glasshouse mitigate the climate impact of a space like that? 
The reason we like greenhouses is because we take everything Mother Nature gives us. We don't throw any of it away. And then we take it and we polish it and we supplement it just enough to make it perfect. But we don't start from zero. We start from 85% given to us for free by the planet. And, and greenhouses allow you to have a quote-unquote indoor quality at much closer to an outdoor footprint and cost. And that's why we like it. So this new farm, the five and a half million square feet, A, it's already an existing farm, right? So like it, the baseline is not zero, right? The baseline is growing tomatoes. We're gonna be able to grow cannabis in there. There's gonna be some of the most high quality and most efficiently, both from an economic and environmental point of view, produced cannabis on the planet. That particular greenhouse is in a great climate with tons of natural light. It's also in a, in a positive pressure design, which allows more of that natural light in the greenhouse, which means you get more result with no additional energy input, right? Like, and that's the, tr that's the real goal is you're gonna take mother nature, but you wanna then protect the plants from the wind, protect the plants from the rain, protect the plants from the dust and the smoke and whatever else is going on, and then make, the, make it just that much more perfect. So um, I, I, that, that particular greenhouse also has 16 megawatts of on-site power generation. Uh, done through a really neat system. They call it a combined heat and power or CHP unit. And the reason it's so awesome when used in this way is that you use all of the energy in some form. So in this case, there are natural gas turbines that make uh, uh, electricity. And normally you make electricity and then you get two things that come out of it that you throw away. CO2, greenhouse gas, heat, right? In this case, we use everything. So we make power from natural gas we use the power, we take the CO2 that's produced, we inject it in the greenhouse for the plants to breathe, and we take the heat and use it to warm the greenhouses when it's cool at night. So nothing is wasted. It's about as environmentally small a footprint as you can get uh, in any system. I mean, it's literally, you're not, you're using every piece uh, that you're, that, you know, that's available to you. And that's almost the definition of efficiency. Are solar and or wind energy a possibility for cannabis or for the greenhouse like the one you have? Yeah, so we actually have a megawatt of solar power uh, uh, on site as well. So that, that exists and, and we use that too. Um, you know, the thing with the renewables, this is nothing specific to cannabis, uh, is you need a balanced grid because all of the renewables have variability to them and you can't have variability in a baseline load for, for a grid. So you know, I think where we're getting to, I think we're making pretty good progress. Um, we have a cool system at the greenhouse where we sell back the energy that we produce if we're not using it, right? So we generate it on site. If we have a use for it, we use it. If we don't, we sell it back and provide it to the grid, but still maintains a lot of that uh, environmentally friendly nature because we're still using the CO2. It's not just being released in the atmosphere. It actually goes in the greenhouses. The plants breathe CO2 in like we breathe oxygen, then they breathe out oxygen, right? So they're like a catalytic converter to take what is literally a greenhouse gas, turn it back into oxygen, kind of clean itself up and release that out there. And again, we would be burning natural gas to warm the greenhouses at night anyway. In this case, we burn the natural gas, we get the electricity, we get the CO2, and we get the heat for the greenhouse. So even if we're selling it back to the grid, uh, we're still using all the waste byproducts uh, and putting them to good use, which uh, beats a power plant operating on its own. It seems like scale might be the answer, where mm -hmm. if you grow more cannabis in one place, one state, and export it nationally, uh, and you, of course, that has to be legalized at the federal level, um, if you can legalize the export 
of California cannabis, that solves a lot of the climate solution because you have fewer greenhouses all over the country growing for their state. Um, Do you see it as a solution? Yeah, for for sure. The other thing, too, is many other states are not in climates where growing in a greenhouse even works. So most of the states are predominantly indoor growing, which is the worst from an environmental perspective, right? That political article you mentioned, it mentioned in there that there's the greenhouse takes 45% less energy than an indoor grow. Our data actually shows it's significantly less than that even. Part of the reason for that is we're in this beautiful climate, right? Like when, if you were in Canada or Colorado or Northern California or Oregon, right? Like it's, there's, it snows. <laughs> you have to put a massive amount of heat in. It gets tremendously hot. You have to do some sort of active cooling. Here in Santa Barbara, like it's 72 and sunny 300 days a year. So you don't really have to push things around a, a much because it's such a good place to grow. So not only do you want to centralize it in a scale more efficient, but bringing it to the climate where you're closest to perfection and you have to add the least amount of energy inputs that's the best scenario. Growing in a greenhouse in central, southern, you know, sunny California versus growing in a warehouse in cold Michigan, you're going to see probably a 10x difference in the amount of CO2, kilograms of CO2 per kilograms of cannabis that you produce. And that's that's what we want to optimize for. And that's what the, you know, ban on, you know, lack of being able to move things, growing things where they should be grown versus where they shouldn't necessarily. How well situated is Glasshouse to be the cannabis cultivator that is there when the feds legalize this? You guys can start exporting stuff. Is that part of your play? Yeah, I mean, you know, so we don't depend on that at all. We're not uh, predicated on that. We're, but what we are doing is we're setting up a supply chain that is prepared for that. So right now it's California only. It's a great place to be as a single market. Largest market, as I mentioned, you know, 25% of the country is right here. If it was an MSO or multi-state operator, it'd be like a 13-state MSO in the country of California. So if you're going to be in one spot, this is the spot to be. Um, but we're building a supply chain because we do expect the walls to come down. And as we talked about, we do think customers have a preference for the Appalachian of California. And so we will have a supply chain that can supply the rest of the country uh, as soon as we're able to. I mean, some other states are already selling what they call California weed, right? California cannabis. Tell me about that. It was reported in the Bloomberg article I cited earlier that other states and growers in other states are selling what they call California cannabis to cash in on that California appellation. Ah, yeah, I got it. So, yeah, yeah, so they're claiming it is. Uh, yes, I mean, California cannabis is definitely a marketing label, right? And uh, I think you see a lot, whether it's you know counterfeit or whether it's smuggled in other states that is branded as, as California. And again, it just it tells us what consumers what customers want before they can have it and the illicit market delivers on it. But once the legal market can, um, that's what they're going to gravitate to. You mentioned something earlier. You you were alluding to mass incarceration and Mm -hmm. kind of the unequal application of enforcement when it comes to cannabis policy. California prisons are filled with low-level, nonviolent drug offenders, many of whom are doing time for marijuana possession, as you noted. Some of them are on their third strikes and locked up for decades because of this. You were quoted as saying in a recent interview, which we'll post in the show notes, you said, quote, I'm going to connect the flywheel of our success to trying to correct some of the wrongs in the past, whether it's prisoner release or record expungement or both, 
end quote. That's a really interesting idea. Can the cannabis industry get big enough to move the needle on social justice and prison reform in California? Yes, it can. Uh, and I intend to, <laughs> I intend to make it so. Uh, yeah, how important is that for you in Glass House? I, I, I think it's really important. I mean, and it really, it comes back to, hey, we're citizens on the planet first. The natural state of a plant is not to be illegal. Nobody should be locked up and in jail and torn from their family um, for a for solely a plant, right? And and you said it, nonviolent drug offense, right? Like things should be illegal because they're wrong, not wrong because they're illegal. There's nothing wrong about cannabis until someone went and in, and it was done intentionally. I mean, you can look at the stuff Richard Nixon and a bunch of the other folks. Like this was not an accidental thing, right? They the drug war is a massive failure on stopping drugs. It was phenomenally excess, successful at locking up people with dark skin. And that's what they intended it to do, right? And that's what we need to now fix. It is, it is absurd that I'm sitting here talking to you about how we want to grow the most cannabis on the planet. And at the same time, somebody's sitting in jail for having a joint, right? Like, And the absurd thing is not that I want to grow the most cannabis, it's that they're sitting in jail. So. I think a big part of cannabis, and frankly, if we had to, I would put the business side of federal legalization on hold to go after the social justice side if that would make it happen faster. Like the, the predominant reason, right? Of course, I want the business things and you know all that stuff, interstate commerce. But the predominant reason is we need to end the fact that people are sitting in jail for a plant, right? And um, and I I think we're seeing progress. One of the things that really you know, I wish at the time I was excited with Prop 64 in California because it would expunge, it would allow the expungement of records for people back to, I want to say it's like 1996 or something like that. It was a good, decent, you know, period of, of time. The thing I I was naive at and we were, you know, it was early. So, you know, the, as Maya Angelou says, do the best you know, and when you know better, do better. Um, so, but it didn't, the expungements didn't happen automatically. They didn't, they just, they said, they should be able to say, you have a, 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 a conviction that is now not illegal. We changed our mind. We decided it shouldn't have been illegal. So now we're going to take it off your record, right? But they didn't do that. They said, if you want to fill out the paperwork and get an attorney and figure out the process, you can ask us to take it off the record, right? That's bullshit. The people who need it the most are the ones least equipped to do that. So, um, and then it's, but it's getting better, right? Like New York and some of the other newer places, they're going to do it automatically. So that's, that's progress. California should catch up now and do the same thing. If they don't, one of the things I'd like to do is have something where we have a fund or we retain attorneys or we make the process uh, easy. And I don't know what it is. You know, every jar sold donates a dollar to this thing where people can get help getting their records expunged. Because, you know, even more so if you have a record and we society changed its mind, like, isn't that society's responsibility to fix it? Not the person who is now unjustly you know, penalized for it. So I think it's incumbent upon us as an industry to do things to, to fix this was, you know, hence the comment of the more successful we get, the more good I, I want us to be doing to fix the, you know, right some of the wrongs of the past. Obviously we didn't do them. We didn't set it up that way, but here we are taking advantage and, and, you know, benefiting from the change. What, what you can't forget about the people who haven't yet benefited from that change. And we need to help make that happen. Who are some of the Californians you've met in your line of work and also just in life who have really stuck with you and why? That's a good question. 
I mean, I think there's certainly some business uh, leaders out there, not cannabis specific. Uh, Steve Jobs was always kind of one of my product and uh, design business uh, uh, guys that I look towards. Um, um, I think, you know, he had a lot of really good philosophy, not not necessarily that he was the the best person or the nicest person or, you know, had many flaws, but from a business point of view, uh, he had a really kind of concise view on what he wanted to accomplish. Um, and, you know, some of the things that stuck with me, you know, things that he said is, you know, things like a thousand no's for every yes, right? Like you can, you can do anything, but you can't do everything kind of mentality. And he was very precise uh, and conscious about the things that we went after and, and did it with a focus. Uh, I, you know, he has another great quote, you know, to, to basically says, you know, to rem remember that the, the rules of life were invented by people no smarter than us, right? And so it's not, you're not in somebody else's box. You can go and make a, a dent in the world by deciding that you're going to. Um, and I think that perspective is a, is a perspective that I try and keep in mind because a lot of what we're doing is blazing a trail, right? There is no handbook uh, for cannabis. There's not, this is not a, a well-worn, you know, pull out the Jack Welch GE book. This is a, a whole new world. And that's the challenge and the opportunity, but that means that we need to go out there and see past the limitations. We can't just see the limitations, but we have to recognize that we're looking at limitations. And sometimes that means that you have to change those. Um, Elon Musk uh, obviously is a, is a titan in, in the things that he's accomplished, um, you know, uh, from PayPal, the SpaceX and Tesla and the boring company, <laughs> you know, all at the same time, uh, I think it's, it's just, it boggles my mind. Um, I'm a tech guy, so I think I kind of gravitate towards, towards those things. Um, and then there's, you know, some really great stuff happening on the cannabis side. Um, Dr. Oren Davinsky is on our medical and science advisor board to Glasshouse. Um, he was the doc NYU doctor behind Epidiolex, which was the first FDA-approved cannabis-derived drug uh, with GW Pharma targeted at uh, uh, seizures for kids. Um, so, you know, I think that that kind of forward progress uh, is really cool to see. I think there's going to be some amazing advances in cannabis, and uh, I hope we get to be a part of, of helping make some of them happen. What's the biggest challenge that California faces? How can that be surmounted? I tend to be a, a bit a bit more on the libertarian side of things. So I think there's a lot of there's overregulation in California. Um, it, you know, it's a really hard balance to find. So I don't necessarily, you know, think that there's, you know, malintent to it. But there is <laughs> if I was president, I think the first rule I would make is every rule you want to add, you got to find one to take off. Right. Like there's plenty of rules. So if you want to come up with a new regulation, tell me which regulation you're going to get rid of. Right. Like. And, and we don't do that in California. We just add and add and add. And, you know, we have to do quite a bit of permitting work for cannabis. Uh, cannabis is, you know, a whole other layer of overregulation. It's like our cannabis farm had like 13 state agencies or state and local agencies that had to sign off on it. It's a crop. It's a plant, right? It's leaves and roots and sunshine and water. Like it does not pollute the air. It makes the air cleaner. It doesn't jump out and catch anybody. Like, you know, there, it's this. It's just crazy. Like there were basically no regs when it was orchids and it was in the exact same greenhouse. And we just want to switch the crop and now you got to get 13 different agencies in here to, 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 to talk about it. And that just makes, it makes, it makes the progress and what you can accomplish significantly less. And I don't think that that is the best net net result for society. So I would love it if we could find a way to keep the good stuff, shed some of the over regulated stuff, of course, the devil's in the details on what's good and what's over regulation. It depends on who you ask, hence the challenge. But um, 
we we seem to always come down on the more regulation is better side here and i think we should back off that what do people outside california most misunderstand about the state um i think california has a a bit of a reputation for kind of like uh elitist or whatever and um i don't think that that's as true as the reputation like i you know i don't I love California. That doesn't mean that I don't love Texas, right? Like, and I think there's kind of a, a view of like that we think it's better, and that I don't I don't I don't think that's the case. Like, I I pick it, I prefer it, but I don't think that you know it's better than something else in any intrinsic way. It just happens to be the balance of, of stuff that I've chosen, and uh, I think that I think people think that California is like looking down, and I don't think it truly is. Last question for you, and we always end with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? I don't know. I guess I'll, t- I'll take the easy way out, and I'll, I'll go with Steve Jobs for his contribution um, uh, to technology and the planets and design aesthetics and uh, you know, large part of what we do with our lives right now. Graham Farrar, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stu. It was a great time. And there you have it. That is the show for this week. Thank you very much to Graham Farrar of Glasshouse Brands for joining What is California for episode three. Wasn't that just totally fascinating? I was always wondering about how the cannabis industry kind of got its foothold and has grown as much as it has in the last 25 or so years. And that was a really interesting window into the past and the present and in all likelihood what's going to look like in the future. So I hope that was as enlightening for you as it was for me. We're not all about recall elections around here, so that's good. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Airsdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. And of course, we're just online at whatiscalifornia.com. You can support What is California on Patreon if you want to chip in a few shekels for overhead, servers, the like. That's at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. I'd love it if you emailed me. I'm at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. If you like this show, you can review it and rate it at Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. And of course, please subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts. If it's at Apple or Spotify or Overcast or google or amazon wherever you get your podcasts is where you'll find what is california it's been so great being with you i will be back next week until then as always remember keep your eye on the bear